on this episode of This Calling. So my first conversion really was to the church. And I would say my second conversion really was to Jesus. And it happened in seminary. Welcome to This Calling, conversations about vocation. I'm Chris Arnold, a Christian who used to be an atheist, a software engineer who became a priest. These are the calling stories of others, where they are, how they got there, and what they've learned along the way. In this episode, I talk to Everett Lees. Everett is a priest in the Episcopal Church serving Christ Church in the suburbs of Tulsa, Oklahoma. We talk about his journey from the Presbyterian Church into Roman Catholicism and a conversation that took him off in a surprise direction. We record these conversations on Zoom, and uh, because of the coronavirus, everyone is using Zoom these days. Sometimes the servers get overwhelmed, and the audio quality does suffer a, a little bit in the middle of this conversation. I hope you'll bear with us and enjoy my conversation with Everett. Here it is. Everett Lees, welcome to This Calling here we are on Monday in Easter week. How are you? How is Easter? How is the Triduum? How is Holy Week? Uh, yeah, so it is. it, it was so odd um, not really being, not experiencing a Holy Week like I'm used to experiencing and the unfolding of the liturgies. And because we're you know, we were pre-recording services, you know, we did Easter service before it was Easter, which just really made the rest of it just feel really odd. Um, it, But I will say like this Lenten Holy Week really made me appreciate so much more. Um, one, the liturgical calendar and the unfolding of it, like how it really does form us. Um, but, you know, uh, at, at at the end of the at the end of the week on Easter Sunday, you know, we could say Christ is risen and the Lord is risen indeed. Hallelujah. Yeah. So, you know, I mean it it you know, that's that's ultimately what our hope is. And whether Holy Week was perfect or not, it it uh he's still risen. He's still so. risen. Yeah. So um so the liturgical year, tell tell me just for a moment before we plunge into your life story, what do you mean by that? Like your your new awareness of how the liturgical year forms us you know i mean one i i I think the that that this lent in many ways was was has was one of the most profound one because i really felt sort of that loss and that deep yearning for god i mean that's that's sort of what lent is supposed to be about you know when we give things up or we abstain from things the disciplines that we take on all of those are, are not to sort of prove, oh, wow, I made it through 40 days without drinking, you know, beer. Um, it's, it's really about learning that we are dependent upon God and God's grace in order to, 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 to make it through life. And so in that sense, this Lent was, was really profound and really powerful because, you know, we're, we're, we, we had to fast from everything as a as a culture um but um there's so so kind of going through that and then experiencing sort of the joy of easter after this really sort of odd and painful sorrowful lent was was really was 
sort of meaningful. I mean, um, it, it was, it was in some ways it was, it made, it made the proclamate the Easter proclamation all the more, you know, powerful. I mean, I, I sit there and I think about, um, there's an Orthodox church here in town and I don't know that they're actually doing it anymore, but they used to do like a Thursday lunch. And so you could go there and, and they would serve lunch and you could go eat. And, you know, and during Lent they're, they're vegan. And, and I sit there and think about like that sort of, sort of extreme, um, you know, uh, discipline, how much more, the joy of the Easter celebration, you know, would be. Mm. Um, and, and for most of us, we just, it, it, it just kind of like, Oh, well, you know, I'm not going to eat desserts or chocolates or, you know, I'm going to abstain from fast food, whatever it is. And although, I mean, I think those things are fine to do. I'm just saying like, like it really opened up to me just really how powerful, you know, this is because we don't live in a culture that feasts and fasts much, right? We're always feasting. <laughs> yeah. And, and, and so, you know, our, our, um, you know, those who have gone before us, they really understood what it meant to fast, right? Like you, you really had to hold back some stuff in order so you could have the celebration. Um, you know, they, they understood like, what, what does it mean to um, celebrate you know, a feast day in the midst of, of Lent. So, you know, um, but the Annunciation, you know, I think always falls during Lent. And so you get this like little point of, of joy in the midst of otherwise sort of doldrums. Um, yeah. Yeah, it, it, it definitely did feel like, uh, I was saying on Twitter the other day that it, it's been the, Lentiest Lent ever, and the least holy Holy Week yeah. for me, um, because I yeah. didn't get to celebrate um, in the right way all of those glorious liturgies of Holy Week. You know, so yeah. that's okay. It's not about how I feel. <laughs> Objectively, you know, the Lord right. is risen, and we live in a world where um, the tomb is empty. So. Anyway, so but it but it also I, but I do think like it points to how powerful those liturgies really absolutely. are and you know I mean um yeah I'd much rather have the liturgies than no than not have them. Right. Uh, right. So who are you? <laughs> you're a priest and you're in Oklahoma. Tell tell us more. I'm a priest in Oklahoma. Um I serve a congregation in Tulsa, Oklahoma. Um, and, and, um, the area that I'm in is, is fairly suburban. Um, it, um, it's the, it's the new money part of Tulsa, not the old money part of hmm. Tulsa. Um, and, um, um, the church that I served, uh, back in the 1980s and early nineties, uh, was a church called church of the Holy spirit. And they split in the early 2000s um, as a result of the recent unpleasantness and sort of planted itself elsewhere. And the diocese um, wanted to obviously maintain we own the property. And so they said, hey, you keep the name. We'll keep the building. Um, And so they restarted the church as Christ Church. 
Um, and um, I came in in the nine thousand eleven. years after the split, I I arrived. Uh, had brought in a, a close to retired priest just to kind of have some some normalcy and have someone who was you know real solid and give them some time to figure out what it is that they're going to do. And uh, Bishop came to me as I was ending my curacy and said, boy, do I have a deal for you. And um, I don't know, the the Lord really placed on my heart that this is where I was supposed to be. And uh, so I arrived in, in 2011 and it's just a fantastic community. Hmm. So were, were you a priest somewhere else before that? So for two years, I served as a curate in a, another suburb of Tulsa. Hmm. Um, and so Oklahoma has a, has a fairly strong tradition of having, of leaving seminary and going somewhere as a curate uh, for two years. And then ideally staying in Oklahoma, serving somewhere. But um, yeah. So I, I know that suburban ministry, like, that's 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 where that's where I'm really called to do, to be and and I don't know there's there's some of that that's just you know there's some criticism there because you know it's suburban ministry you generally don't have some challenges that you do have in in other places but um, having grown up in suburbia like like I I I understand those people I understand the culture. Um, so, so what, what do you think yeah. is the, uh, the unique charism, the unique character of suburban ministry as you understand it? So, um, so, so typically suburban ministry, uh, one, they, they aren't the, the well-established blue bloods, um, of the town. They are, they are sort of, um, they're, they're people who are, uh, middle to upper income, uh, some upper income, um, who um, really are striving for the best for their family. And in some ways that doesn't come out in, in really great ways. I mean, I think about sort of the, the constant battle to, you know, over-program our children. Um, the school district that my church is is situated in is one of the best school districts in the state of Oklahoma uh, and one of the best in, in Tulsa area. And so every, so people who, who go there move there so that their kids can go to that, that school district. Um, and it also means for a lot of them is that they're stretched to the max because they have maybe bought more house than, you know, they should have bought, but they did so because they wanted to be in the right school district because they feel like, that's what's best for their kids. Um, you know, I, I, I think, I think another challenge of suburban ministry, I think there's always sort of this sense of trying to find your identity, like, like, who are you? Um, and so I think I, I, I think identity and, and meaning is a big part of what people in, in suburban areas are looking for. 
So how did you wind up a priest anyway? Oh, uh, so I, uh, I, as if, so the, the, the long story as short as possible, um, I went to go work for a company as a marketing director right out of college. And this was, I graduated college 2000. Uh, the dot-com bust happened, um, you know, in, in 2000. And so our funding for our startup just dried up. I was let go and uh, moved back home with my folks um, and started going back to the church that I had gone to as a high schooler, which is St. Mary's in Edmond, Episcopal Church. And the priest there, Father David, uh, said, hey, could we go and have lunch? And I said, sure. And I had lunch with him and he said, you know, um, I think you're supposed to be a priest. And I thought the guy was crazy. <laughs> and just out of the blue, he I said, said that? yeah, I mean, he, he just said, you know, I, I haven't, I, I, I really haven't done this um, before, but I just, he goes, I, I really think that you're called to be a priest. And, um, and I, I, I absolutely rejected that and said, nope, I'm not going to do it. And, um, but what it did do is ignited within me sort of this search for meaning. And, and so um, my roommate and I, uh, we, um, after I got out of my parents' house, I, uh, I had a roommate and uh, we went around and we went to, to almost every single church that you could imagine. Um, Cause I think it, I think it kind of prompted this crisis. Like what is he seeing in me that I'm not seeing in myself? And how do I know that I want to be an Episcopalian for the rest of my life? And so I really began to, um, to, to search and we tried out lots of churches. Um, when my when my my wife and I were engaged, she grew up Roman Catholic, and I said, "Oh, well, there's not that much difference between Roman Catholicism and Episcopalian. I'll just become a Roman Catholic." And uh, my roommate was dating a Roman Catholic as well, so he and I would go to the RCIA courses at at the, the Catholic Church, and I don't know about seven sessions in the deacon who was leading the RCIA courses, like pulled me aside. And he said, listen, I, I, I'm not saying this to be rude. He goes, I don't think you're Roman Catholic. He goes, I think you're an Episcopalian. And I said, well, that's where I had gone to church before. And he goes, you know, sometimes we're home and we just don't know it. And he goes, I really, I, he goes, I, I, he goes, I think he goes, I'm, you, you can finish these courses out. If you want to be confirmed in the Catholic Church and and receive communion, like I'm 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 all for that. But he he just said, I really think I think you're an Episcopalian, and so uh, went back to the uh, Episcopal Church. My wife uh, and I had some really long, hard conversations about that because part of being Roman Catholic is more than it, it, there's a family identity that is tied to being Catholic. Yeah, it's one of the things that you're supposed to promise um, that, when you when you get married, right? 
Yeah. And so, so when, when we first went and met with um, the church to get married, like we were, we were going to be Catholic and, and we, you know, we did, you know, it wasn't until later that, that we really kind of said, no, I think, I think we're going to go to the Episcopal church. It was close enough for her that she felt comfortable doing it. Um, and it was the week before our wedding and the, the church called us and said, Hey, we've just got some paperwork you need to fill out. Um, can you come by the church? And so Chris and I went and, um, the priest there said, Oh, we, you forgot to sign this when all the process like months before it happened, which says you promised to raise your children in the Catholic faith. Mm-hmm. And, Kristen's the only one who had to sign it because she's the Catholic. I'm not. And she kind of looks at it and, you know, it's clear she's sitting in her mind. Like, do I sign it and lie? Do I say, Hey, actually we've made a different decision. Is our, is our wedding now canceled? Um, and so she's just sitting there thinking about this. And the priest uh, looks at her and, and says, look, you're not signing this in blood we just want to make sure that your kids are going to be Christian and just an incredible grace filled moment. And so Kristen, you know, signed, signed the paperwork and just, just a really, just a grace filled, um, um, experience. And so they got married in the, in the Catholic church, the Episcopal priest, uh, that was now serving at St. Mary's participated. And after we got married, we started getting active in church. We were, you know, working with um, the youth. Um, I mean, just all sorts of activities in the church. And people started saying, Hey, uh, have you ever thought about being in ministry as a, as a profession? And I was like, no. And I, that's not going to be me. And I don't know. One day I was sitting there talking to Kristen. I said, you know, a lot of people are saying that I should think about being an ordained priest. And I'm sort of thinking about that. And she goes, Oh, okay. And six months later, I just, I felt like it was really what I was supposed to do. And I said to her, Hey, you remember that time when I said um, I was thinking about being a priest and I, I really think that's maybe what I am supposed to do. And so um, she's been hugely supportive. Again, just a major shift. I mean, people may be called to, to being in the, um, but nobody is called to be a priest spouse. Um, and so, um, she's been hugely, hugely supportive. I don't know that I would have been able to do it without, you know, her support. Um, so yeah. Um, so did you, so did you ever go back and talk to yeah. that guy who first said that to you, that, that he thought that he saw a calling to the priesthood in you? Did you ever talk to him about it later on and say, I just want to let you know that, uh, I'm following through on this. Yes. Yes. And he, um, it, yeah, I, I let him know and he, um, uh, and he was one of my presenters when I was ordained a priest and, um, you know, just one of the most 
wonderful, delightful. Um, I mean, just just in my mind, a model model of priesthood. So, um, yeah. So, how old were you when that was all happening? Also, so I would have had my conversation with Father David when I was twenty-two, and um, you know, it was it was probably. I mean, I was probably, I don't know, twenty-seven, twenty-eight when I, I got serious about thinking about the priesthood. Hmm. So what was happening during that five years? Was it was it coming up in your mind from time to time, or did did you just not give it much thought at all for for years, and then suddenly it came crashing in on you? Yeah, so for for years, I mean, I, I yeah, I mean, it wasn't something I entertained actively, and but it was just sort of these cold culmination of voices saying, Hey, you should really think about doing this, that I finally opened myself up to saying, you know, what is it that they're seeing that I'm not, Mm -hmm. um, you know, and, 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 and a huge part of it was that I did not feel holy. Mm. I didn't feel worthy. I, I, I remember, um, one of my best friends lives here in Tulsa. We, known each other throughout high school and college and just anyways, we, we had met for lunch and we ran into a, uh, a friend uh, while we were having lunch and, you know, she saw my collar and she goes, what are you wearing that for? And I said, I'm a priest. And she starts laughing. I said, oh, that's a good one. No, really. What, what, why are you wearing that? And I'm like, no, I really am a priest. <laughs> and, you know, not, I mean, not that I was like, you know, this huge trouble. I mean, I, I, I mean, I, quite honestly, I mean, I, pretty boring in terms of like the things I've done in life. But I, I don't think most people would have sat there and said holiness is one of those things that that marks his identity. Um, hmm. And so I think that was just sort of this feeling was is that my mind of what a priest is or what my mind of what a religious person didn't necessarily mesh what I saw about myself. Um, so, so what shifted? Did you see yourself differently or did you see priests differently? Maybe, maybe a little bit of both. Mm. Um, and, and certain, and certainly, I mean, you know, Certainly my, my own practices began, you know, to change. I mean, one of the things that led me to the Episcopal Church, um, I, so I grew up Presbyterian, uh, PCUSA, although it was a, a pretty conservative um, PCUSA church. They've now left the PCUSA and they're in some sort of other Presbyterian uh, group. Um. But, uh, you know, I had, I, and, and I went to this, like, really sort of strict evangelical private school. Uh, you weren't allowed to have prom or dances because those were horrible things. Lots of sport, spiritual warfare sort of talk, you know, if, if you know, if division, you know, if a fight broke out, it's because Satan's uh, 
Hindran spirit had descended upon us. And, you know, I, I, I remember what the, my sixth grade teacher uh, sitting there saying, like, if you get distracted during prayer, it's because you've allowed Satan to enter into your, your heart and has taken over your, your soul and your mind. And so as a kid with like ADD, like that just scared the, you know, what out of me. Um, and, and so what I, what, what I fell in love with in the Episcopal church, cause this, you know, while, while I now reject that kind of thinking that was still in my mind, what I loved about the Episcopal church was sort of the pattern and set prayers. Um, cause then I couldn't get, distracted and so it was sort of like a vaccine against satan entering into my heart because there's the prayer i've read the prayer and you know now now i have prayed um but but over time i fell deeper into the anglican tradition um and you know going to you know morning going to morning prayer and and um you know Morning prayer and Compline are probably my my two um, favorite you know services, um, but but soon that that pattern of prayer and the liturgical tradition and regular reception of Holy Communion and understanding the lives of saints like all of those things began to sort of form me in really positive and wonderful ways. So where was, well, no, let's go back. Okay. So you grew up Presbyterian. Yeah. Uh, what, what was church like? Was it, I mean, I, I don't really know much about Presbyterian churches. I I'm guessing that some of them are more formal and liturgical and some of them are more um, free form. Yeah. Which was yours like? Yeah. <sighs> Yeah, and you know, and, and and it's hard, you know. I mean, because you know, I we went there until I was pro- probably, you know, eighth, ninth grade. Um, so my memory as a child is that I don't remember anything truly distinctive about it, versus like say a Methodist church that I had attended. So we did receive Holy Communion um, either monthly or quarterly. Um, and, you know, preaching was a big, you know, the preaching of the sermon was the big part of it. And, and Joel, who was the, the pastor was a really, you know, was a, uh, a really good preacher. I mean, it was, it was academic. I mean, I think that's sort of a hallmark of Presbyterianism is sort of an academic rigor. Um, most of my experiences were sort of more, you know, Sunday school, you know, youth group and, and things like that rather than the actual, you know, sort of Sunday worship. Um, interestingly, my brother and father were all baptized uh, on the same Sunday. My father, his parents, one was a Baptist and one was Jewish. And so largely kind of grew up without a lot of faith in their home. Um, when my grandfather had married a Gentile, you know, his, his father said a prayer for the dead and tore his, you know, his, his clothing and all that. 
Um, and so my grandfather was, you know, I don't know that he regularly went to, um, to temple. Um, he certainly would have considered himself Jewish. He just wasn't maybe actively participating in Judaism. Um, and so my father was never, was never baptized. And I think it was only after my grandfather died that my dad, my brother and I were, were baptized. Cause I think my dad did not want to offend his dad. Um, yeah. I'm not sure what that had to do with, with anything, but <laughs> that's, that's all right. This is, uh, this that's, is how it goes. Everyone. I was getting to see what it's like having a conversation with Everett because out of the middle of nowhere, I'll tell a story and people are like, yeah, what does that have to do with what we were talking about? So that's all right. So eventually you drifted towards liturgical worship. Yeah. Uh, when, um, when I went to high school, I attended a Roman Catholic uh, high school okay. and I absolutely loved the mass. Oh. Um, obviously I wasn't Roman Catholic, so I could not receive, um, communion. Um, but I, I loved the mass and I was dating uh, a girl at the time. And she said, Oh, well you should come to the Episcopal church. It's like, you know, the Catholic church, but different. And so I started going to church with her and um, then I chose to be confirmed and my parents then they're like, well, if he's excited about going to church, then, you know, we want to go to church where he's excited about. So then they became Episcopalian and they're still, they're still active hmm. in, in their church uh, or that, that St. Mary's. Um, but really it was, it was the Roman Catholic um, church that introduced me to the liturgical tradition. Um, and I had a good four years of, of Roman Catholic education. And so I do not have, I mean, I, I didn't grow up Roman Catholic, but I do not have Roman Catholic baggage. Um, you know, I, I appreciate what, what they gave me. Well, you've got baggage uh, from somewhere. <laughs> we all do. We all have, we all we have all baggage. Have baggage. I, and now we are generating our own Episcopal church baggage as we go along. That's right. I think it's an inevitable part of life, right? We, uh, we're, we're formed we, during a particular phase of our lives. We belong to a community and we find ourselves um, being supported where we are. And then we grow. And then we look back on all the supports we had from the earlier phase of our lives, uh, either with um, kind of tender nostalgia or with a little bit of resentment or sometimes a mix of both because we're growing as much as anything else. So. And and because I was never, steeped in you know i mean i've always heard about this sort of roman catholic guilt i mean i have so i you know now as a priest i have parishioners who come to the episcopal church from the catholic church for a variety of reasons they got divorced um some people you know are just fed were are fed up with 
the Roman Catholic Church's response and lack thereof to, to you know, clergy sex abuse. Um, and, and one of the, the most common refrains is, is that it is refreshing being in a place where they don't feel guilt all the time. Hmm. Um, and um, so that's, so that's not a portion of it that I've I ever really had to wrestle with. I just saw the, the good parts of the tradition. Um, and, you know, I went to, I went to this conference, um, it was up at Willow Creek and Willow Creek is like this giant, um, sort of evangelical church outside of Chicago. Um, you know, they, um, were sort of a, a groundbreaker in, in the seeker service movement and you know just get them into the doors and if we get them into the doors then transformation will happen um there's some i don't know as an aside there's some really interesting work that willow creek has done on their own selves to realize that actually doesn't work that just simply getting having a wide open door is not enough for spiritual change and growth um but i went up there for this conference and Willow Creek had started a liturgical service and they were, they were using Eucharistic prayers from the Episcopal church. And when it came time to sing the Sanctus, they sang a praise and worship song, uh, 10, 10,000 reasons. And, um, and I was just like, why are they doing that? And so I went and I talked to the guy who's sort of in charge of that service. And I said, can you explain to me why you sang that rather than the Sanctus? And he said, oh, because in Chicago, um, everybody is either Roman Catholic or used to be a Roman Catholic. And he says, most people who used to be Roman Catholic don't have really good ex memories or experiences of it. And so we don't want to do anything that's too like their church that they grew up in. Um, Obviously, I have opinions and thoughts on that, but wow. I just, you know. But anyways, I, I find it fascinating. I like to go to, like, these evangelical gatherings that are utilizing the tradition and teaching the tradition um, and kind of seeing what is that, that they're doing that we could learn from. Um, so. So off you went to seminary at some point. Well, no. Off I you go to seminary. So you didn't yeah. get the seminary first. You went to uh, your parish priest and said, I think I'm called to ordain ministry. How did how did that yes. how did that part where you became an aspirant and then a postulant in, in our in our language? How did that go? Yeah, so um, so I went I went to um, to Father Mark, parish priest, and I said, you know, hey, I really think I'm called to this. And, um, so he set up a, a, a lay committee, um, and we went through these questions and a lot of it was sitting there telling the stories that I'm telling now and, um, uh, just talking together about my faith and what ministry looks like. And, and tandem to that is that the diocese would host one, weekend a month um sort of discernment retreats 
So a guy named Father John Borrego led those and each each month had a different focus on an aspect of ministry. Sometimes it was the personal aspect. Some is it, you know, what's it to be a leader? Where does authority come from? What is it like to be a, a person in ministry when you have a family? Uh, those kinds of things. And so, um, so I, so, so there was a portion where I was doing work with leaders at St. Mary's and then also um, at the diocesan level of meeting and reflecting on, on ministry together. Um, at the end of that, um, you go to, in Oklahoma, you go to this thing called BACM, the Bishop's Advisory Committee on Ministry, and they interview um, all the people plus their, their spouse, and you either get a go or no go. Um, and, um, I can remember after, I think we went in February and I would check the mailbox every day waiting for my letter. And finally my mine came in April, uh, to say that I had been approved. Um, by that time they had already given us permission to go and look at seminaries. And so, um, went and, and looked at, uh, I'd already chosen where we wanted to go. And when the letter came. And it was just getting ready for our move to Austin, Texas. We went. I went to the seminary of the Southwest. In Did Austin. you look anywhere else, or was that your heart was set on that? Well, so um, I, I I had inquired with the bishop about two other places. One was the Shota House, in which the the previous bishop was. That was an absolute no. Um. And I had also inquired about Swanee, but since my wife was working, we had heard mixed things about whether jobs were actually available for spouses at the seminary or not. And so we decided just to cross that one off. Uh, and so then it left us with either Virginia Seminary or Seminary of the Southwest. And, um, I, uh, Kristen and I traveled up, um, for a visit an interview at, at Virginia seminary. And, you know, it, it's, it, Virginia seminary is really impressive. I mean, both just in terms of their facilities and grounds, their history, um, the resources that they have, uh, the financial aid they're able to provide. And so, um, and it's a big school. I mean, they have lots of people. Uh, we were, but you know, so I, I was getting ready to turn 30 and the student body there was really uh, pretty young. And um, so we, we were leaving and I was, we, we were sitting at Reagan airport waiting to hop on the, the plane. And I sent an email to the previous Bishop and just said, you know, Hey, we had this great visit at Virginia seminary and we absolutely loved it. And, you know, this, this is, this is where I want to go to seminary. And, and Bishop Moody wrote back and said, I'm so pleased. I, I'm a Virginia grad and I had a great experience there. And I think it's a wonderful school. He said, but um, I really want you to visit at least one other school. And I, I think seminary of the Southwest does really great um, ministry formation and development. And I'd like you to just at least <clears throat> go down there and look at it. And so you, you're right. I mean, so, so obeying Bishop is part of our tradition. And, and so 
I said, sure. And so Kristen and I decided to humor them. We left our, um, left after we got off work. So we hit the road about 5.30 to drive down to Austin, Texas. We get in, I don't know, 1230 or one. I had this message, you know, go here and find this key and then, you know, go stay at, at um, this apartment in, in College Court. And I, I got out of the car. I went onto campus. I got the key. I got back into the car and I said, Kristen, this is where I'm supposed to go. To it was seminary. all the live oak trees, right? And she all goes, over the court. It was all huh? those live oak trees all over the courtyard, right? Right. They're beautiful. Yeah. Right. And she was not, she was not convinced uh, as easily. I mean, at that time, at that time, um, Virginia's admission policy was or process was much more, polished um you know um southwest at that time what i don't think was quite as polished and so you know um she did not have a great initial visit um and but i felt so strongly that that's where i was supposed to be that we agreed to come back i think we came back down like two or three weeks later uh they were having like their official visitors weekend and in the end, she said, look, if that's, if this is where you really want to go, you know, that's fine. I'll support you. She ended up loving Austin. Hmm. Um, well, that's good. And ended up having a great experience at the seminary. Um, and I, I know, you know, looking back on it, it really was, you know, I, I feel blessed to have, to have gone there. Um, not that that's the only good seminary, but I just had a fantastic experience. Um, I had heard from so many people say, now, now don't go off to seminary and lose your faith or don't go off to seminary and become an atheist. Uh, and I actually found my faith deepened and strengthened, um, in seminary. Well, do you think that was true for all your classmates or did you have classmates who did wind up, uh, losing their faith or becoming disillusioned with the reality of the church? Well, so, you know, one is, is that was, you know, you remember those years, uh, 20, 2009 through 2012, like 2006 to 2009 is when I was there. And so there was a lot of conflict in the church overall. Mm -hmm. And, um, and I think for some people, I think for some people, seminary was, was harder than others. Um, you know, there's, there's some people who go to seminary and they think they know everything there is to know. And they, they see seminary as a hoop that they have to jump through or they don't want to open themselves up to the possibility that they might have something that they could learn. And I think for folks like that, seminary can be really painful because at its best, it, there's a deconstruction and reconstruction that happens in seminary. Um, you know, you have these things, you've been in one parish your entire life. And so there's these traditions and these things that you do, uh, or this way of doing things liturgically. And then, you know, suddenly, you know, you're being asked to reflect upon, well, why is that meaningful for, for you? Or, you know, actually, maybe that's not the way that the prayer book envisions it being done. Hmm. Um, and, and for some people, you know, there's, there is, it causes this clash. Um, I think for other people, they just have a really great experience. Um, 
I think I think I think seminary overall can be a really a highly anxious time because you're you're taking out you're taken out of an environment that you've been in for a long time. You're thrown into a new environment. Um and it's like you know, the first couple of months you're just trying to figure out what it is you're doing. And by by the end of seminary, you're just, you're like, you're ready to go. And so like that last semester, or really almost that whole last year, it's all about like looking forward to what's next. <laughs> That's, yeah. Um, and so I think, so I think in some ways, I mean, I think seminary just creates a lot of anxiety. Um, yeah. But anyways, I think, I think for most people in our class, I had a pretty good experience. I mean, there's a couple of notable exceptions. We, when we were there, um, when I was in seminary, it was a time of, of considerable transition, which were all things that were out of our power. The dean was an interim dean, Dean Turner, who was just a fantastic man. A lot of the faculty were new. There had been a lot of turnover in faculty. Um, so there was a lot. There was just a lot of change. Um, and but I still had a great experience. Mm. Yeah, I think you did. You and I meet at Seminary of the Southwest. Did you come down for there was uh, like that? Yeah, sem- seminary and seminary and leadership conference. Yeah, that must yeah. have been it. And then yeah, we hosted it at CBSP met. the next year. Yeah, and and we were at a were we at a preaching conference together too? Yeah, at yeah, at Villanova. Yeah, yeah, yep. Yeah, <laughs> small world. All right. All right. So uh, you've been, so you, you came out of seminary and you worked as a curate for two years and then moved across town and became rector. Well, vicar. Okay. Technically. Do you want to explain for our listeners, if you would, what's the difference between a rector and a vicar? Well, and Chris, uh, correct me if I'm wrong. Uh, it, so in the in the Episcopal Church, if you are a parish, which defined by the canons means that you are above a certain ASA and you are completely self-supporting, then you are a rector. Um, and it, it, is it true that the the uh, genesis of that word is like little ruler or ruler or something? Is that true? Um. I I think so. Okay. And then and then and then <laughs> if, you're, so, yeah. if you're if if you're under if you're under a certain ASA and, and or you're receiving financial support from the diocese uh, and we're we're a restart of the diocese mission and um so we we are almost at the end of our diocesan assistance but it means that we are a mission of the diocese and so that, therefore, technically, the bishop is the rector of the congregation, and I am there in his place, so I'm the vicar in place of hmm. the bishop. Since So, uh, um, and, I, and vicar just means like in place of, basically, right? Uh, yeah, I think so. <laughs> and, and in England, in England, they're all, all vicars, I'm pretty certain, unless you're like a dean, but I think everyone... Uh. 
Yeah, Air. England, in, they've they've got a whole mess of complicated situations there. But yeah, I, I, I think you know, there's the, the in England, there's the the common name that anyone wearing a collar who walks around the village, um, being nice to people, it gets called vicar by, um, by the people on the street. But I don't I don't yeah. know exactly what the rules are with different. Uh, official titles, but yes, in the Episcopal Church yeah. we have um, pretty strict rules about these things: vicar and rector and priest in charge. So my first yeah. two parishes, when I was in the southeast Kentucky, I was priest in charge, and then when I was in Kansas, I was priest in charge, and now, uh, now I'm rector. So. Okay. I haven't been a vicar yet, and I haven't been a curate either. I just went straight in, straight from seminary to my first priest in charge gig, which was um, a pretty steep learning curve. But like you said, like by the time you are in your final year in seminary, and I was in seminary for five years because I did two degrees. Um, oh, yeah, that's right. For various reasons that I'll explain Uh when I eventually do my own, like my own calling story uh, episode where I tell my story. Um, so yeah, I came out of seminary and I was just, I was like a greyhound ready to sprint out of the gates. I just wanted to like be in charge of my own place and do my best and sink or swim, but uh, give it a shot. So how did you find your curacy years? Did you have a good relationship uh-huh. with your supervising rector? I really did. Um, he, he uh, um, it was a really, it was a really healthy community. I mean, they had, they had experienced some uh, conflict a few years prior because he, he, he got divorced um, while serving there and took some time off and, you know, people kind of set themselves up into either for him or, you know, against him. Um, but, but overall it was a really healthy congregation. Um, and I learned, a, I learned a lot um, there. Um, he, he, he was really big on spiritual care as the cornerstone of uh, parish ministry. Um, and so, you know, a lot of, you know, a lot of pastoral, um, care was a big emphasis. Um, you know, he, he enabled me to preach on a, on a fairly frequent regular basis. And, you know, I've heard of places where, you know, the, the rector doesn't want to give up the, the pulpit. Um, but, you know, but, but he, you know, he let me preach and, uh, let you know, kind of let me have some free reign. I mean, the things that I was good at, he, you know, he and passionate about, you know, he would let me do. And, um, so it was a, it was a, it was a good experience. Um, yeah. Cool. What's the favorite part of being a priest? What is my favorite thing about being a priest? Um, so I think, I mean, I mean, a couple of things is that I, I really truly believe 
and the stuff that the church teaches. And I believe that it really matters. And, and so I think having an ability to think about, to teach, to preach, and to celebrate these mysteries is, is just an awesome gift. Um, I think when you are a, a parish priest, you are invited into people's lives, um, into their deepest pain, and also their deepest mm -hmm. joys. And that is really incredible to have, to be opened in, in that way. Um, so that would be, those are, I think those are my favorite things about being a priest. All right. The flip side of that then, what's your least favorite part of, of parish priestly, well, of, of your parish priestly life? Yeah. Um. I have not, I mean, I, let, I have, I, so I'm, I am blessed in the fact that I serve a congregation that doesn't nitpick me and doesn't complain, you know, a whole lot. Um, they're very supportive. And there's a lot of places where that is not the case. And no matter what you do, either, well, father so-and-so you know, used to do it this way or, you know, and you just feel like you're con and I just, I haven't had that experience. Let me say the challenge of being a priest is that, that human beings are flawed and broken and we have to love anyways. And, and, you know, I, I don't have, I, I, I have to, you know, I have to love those who God has given me to care for. And sometimes that means biting your tongue when not, what I'd really like to do is say, you know, Hey, um, so I think, I think that's the, I think that's the hardest part is, is that, we don't get to choose who God brings to our doors. Um, we just, we just have to love, love them and, and care for their souls. Um, this isn't like, you know, there's not a draft that happens where we get to sit there and we say, well, okay, you know, James Smith and I'll trade you, you know, Bob Jones and you know, I mean that doesn't that doesn't happen. I mean we, we just we, we have who we have. Um I will say the other part of parish ministry that is deeply frustrating is that there's a lot of things that I cannot solve. Mm -hmm. Um the amount of needs that there are in uh, the amount of human need in terms of hunger, um the way the economy impacts people. And we're shielded a little bit because we are in South Tulsa. It is, you know, a fairly affluent area. And so, you know, the human needs that we have in our area are, are you know, probably more likely like addiction, abuse, things that happen behind closed doors. They're not, where do we get our next meal? Yeah. Um, although I think we're in the midst of, you know, this pandemic and I think it's probably going to, lay bare some of those, those, those things, but, um, the, the deep 
need out there and knowing that there's not enough that we can do um, is really difficult. What do you think are the biggest spiritual needs of the people in Tulsa? Um, I'm throwing a pretty big question your way. I'm sorry about that, but <laughs> no. So, I mean, I just, I, I, I think what, I think what Americans and what a lot of Western Christians struggle with is, uh, is, is twofold. One is deep questions about whether we are enough and we live in a culture, a consumer driven culture, which constantly tells you are not enough. Um, you need to, you know, you know, we need to deal with our sins and, you know, we, we, we need the sacraments, um, you know, a, a rock concert, um, you know, uh, a bar, um, your, your, your kids baseball team, or like all those things that we think will make us enough for at least make us forget that we aren't enough are so much more powerful and attractive on the surface. Um, and, and, and once people get the depth of God's love for them, then I think they understand it. Um, I think there's something about those who are in recovery that understand this, that other people don't. Um, which is why I think some of the, the stuff that comes from recovery um, models um, is some of the most powerful spiritual and, and religious um, experience information, whatever that's out there. Um, so I, I, I think that, I think the culture is a whole lot better at telling people what will make them enough and what will make them happy and fulfilled in the churches. Yeah. Hmm. So it's like that. Well, it's like it's. It was at the Eagles. Their song looking looking for love in all the wrong places. <laughs> yeah, it's very. And, and, that's and very I, Augustinian. I mean, that's right there in the first book of Saint Augustine's Confessions. Is he says, you know, I was looking for yeah. you everywhere, but you were closer to me than I was to myself. So yeah, from Saint Augustine to the Eagles to <laughs> to us. Yeah, how do you help? people to know that God loves them and that because of that love, they have everything they need. It's challenging. It is challenging. Sometimes Um, I forget it myself. I I think this is really the giftedness of being in a sacramental tradition because, right, so this is what baptism and communion is, 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 is all about, that they are tangible reminders of God's love. Um, for us. And um, so I think that's, I think that's the prime way. I think secondary to that is, is the preaching moment and which you are. Um, and I mean, the gospel's not that complicated. Um, you know, I mean, it's, it's deep, but it's not complicated. And, and um, so I think, I think the ability, so I think, you know, the preaching moment, and then the third part of it is just is past, you know, it, it doesn't even have to be like, um, like formal pastoral care. It's in the, the, the everyday conversations that you have with parishioners and just seeing, 
you know, how they're doing and, and the things that they struggle with. Um, and so just those, those, those conversations. Is, yeah. Hmm. How has being a priest changed your own relationship with God or Jesus or the Trinity or however, yeah. however you want to answer it? So, so my first conversion really was to the church mm. um, and my love for the church. Um, and, and I would say my second conversion really was to Jesus and it happened in seminary. Um, and, um, so I think in, in many ways being a priest has deepened my relationship with God. Um, I have all, you know, going back to my stories, you know, in sixth grade of, you know, my prayer wandering. I mean, I've always sort of had this feeling that my prayer life isn't good enough it's not deep enough it's you know that it's not enough um that i should be like having these like experiences um and that's just not that's not that's just not who i am for whatever reason uh so i've 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 had to kind of give up on this notion that i'm going to have like these radical experiences of god in the midst of prayer or whatever um and and so it's really it's 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 you know, sort of like finding God in the everyday um, has really been something that's been helpful for me. I think that surprises a lot of people because I mean, I, I mean, I, I mean, I would tell people like I don't think I have a really deep spirituality. I mean, I I pray the the, the morning prayer um, most mornings. Uh, I'm not going to lie and say I do it every morning. Um, but it, it, it's not, it, you know, it's not something that just comes naturally, um, naturally to me. And I think part of it is, is probably baggage I'm still carrying from, you know, those religious experiences I had in, you know, elementary and, and middle school of, you know, being scared of the devil all the time. Hmm. Are you still scared of the devil, do you think? No, um, no, I'm not, I'm not scared of the devil. Um, but I think, I think those, I think those formative stories stay with you, whether you realize it or not. Yeah. Um, you know, and I just, and, and, and I think, you know, I look at my, uh, like, you know, so if you do, you know, if you buy into, you know, spiritual types and, and, and stuff like that, you know, um, I think I'm, I'm probably at my core a people pleaser, which probably most clergy to some degree are. And so there's always sort of this, you know, like I've, I haven't met people's expectations or I haven't done enough for them. Um, which, which makes being, um, a priest difficult, mm-hmm. but I, I would say, I would say overall, um, though my, my my spiritual life is stronger, and my, my devotion to Jesus in word and in sacrament is stronger than it was before I went to seminary and before I became a, became a priest. But I don't think I don't think it's because I became a priest that that happened. I think it's because I seriously engage these things for really 
the first time. Mm. Um, and, and, and how, how do we as clergy get people to love the things that we love? And I think that's always a constant challenge. Well, it's time to bring it on home. What is your pop culture recommendation? What are you enjoying your, uh, books, the Netflix shows, the movies, the albums, the apps, games, whatever it is that you're using to take your mind off coronavirus and Holy Week and all that other stuff. So, so right now my Netflix plug is Ozark, um, which is just a brilliant show um, on the questions of evil. Um, And um, it is just, it is a, a absolutely great show. Uh, I'm also um, watching the West Wing for the first time. I oh. never saw it in its initial run, and so uh, so I'm also watching the West Wing, and I'm in season two, which I'm really it enjoying. It's a great it. show. It's a great show. Uh, in terms of, uh, someone told me, uh, challenged me, and said, asked me what I read, um, and I told them. I said, well, those are all you know, Jesus books. What do you, what do you read? That's not Jesus books. And I said, okay. And so, um, I, I'm reading these, uh, books by Daniel Silva, who writes, it's a, it's like this Israeli spy novel hmm. series. And, and so they're just, they're just sort of fun reads. And so I'm reading Daniel Silva books, uh, Israeli spy novel. Well, I'll have checked just the whole series, just anything by Daniel Silva, or is there? Yeah, so they all they almost all follow a single character, um, and so that's one of the challenges is is that there's not a brand new one, so finding the finding them can be a little bit of a challenge. Oh. Uh, and I'm always just like reading theology, kind of you know nerdy books. Yeah, what's, what's your latest and theology so, nerdy book recommendation? Uh, so I just finished a book called the spirit of the early church. Um, Who wrote that? And I want to say the authors will produced by M. It was a really, really great book on just sort of the development of Christian thought and history. He breaks it up into, you know, sort of the development of, the doctrine of God and development of worship and, and things like that development of art. Um, and, and I really, really enjoyed it. Hmm. Uh, and now, and one I got from you that I'm, I'm, I'm trying to also work through is the series by Andrew Root, um, hmm. that works with Charles Taylor's stuff on the secular age. Yeah. And so I'm, I'm also reading the, the root books. faith formation in the secular age and the pastor in a secular age. Yeah. Yeah. It's heavy stuff. The world has changed a lot since I was born. <laughs> um, but that's okay. The world is always changing and Jesus Christ is Lord over it all. That's well, Everett, right. it's time to wrap this up. So thank you so much for coming on this show on this, uh, this calling. 
Um, and I think, I hope this will be released on Wednesday, the 15th of uh, okay. April. So I'll let you know when it comes out. And yeah, thanks again for talking to me. And uh, hey, thanks, you, Chris. Uh, because this is Easter week, uh, would you leave our listeners with uh, with a blessing to go on their way? With a blessing? Yeah. Or a prayer? Your call. I'll leave it in. I'll leave the ball in your court. You know what? Um, I I'm going to read my favorite prayer. I've got to just look it up real quick so I make sure I read it correctly. You know that would be so you that would add- be a great segment. While you're looking that up, that would be a great segment for me to add to this podcast instead of. Uh, well, I mean, the pop culture recommendation, I've learned a lot of, of good uh, shows and things out there from that. But I think it would be great to ask people what their favorite prayer is from the prayer book or, you know, wherever else you find prayers. Um, so maybe maybe you've so that, just started a new segment for this for this podcast. Thank you. Yes. <laughs> I'm, a, I'm a trailblazer. <laughs> Uh, so this is a prayer uh, that's prayed at ordinations, but it's also prayed um, on Good Friday, and it is my uh, it is my favorite prayer in the prayer book. So let us pray. O oh God of unchangeable power and eternal light, look favorably on your whole church, wonderful and sacred mystery. By the effectual working of your providence, carry out in tranquility the plan of salvation. Let the whole world see and know that things which are being cast down are being raised up and things which have grown old are being made new, that all things are being brought to their perfection by him through whom all things were made. Your Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord, who lives and reigns with you in the unity of the Holy Spirit, one God forever and ever. Amen. Thanks again for listening to my conversation with Father Everett Lees. Again, if you'd like to get in touch with him, be sure to look in the show notes for links to find him on the social media. You can find me on the social media on Twitter at Apple Tree Pods, and on Facebook, you can find the page for Apple Tree Podcasts. Feel free to like and subscribe and review and share this with anyone who might be interested. And while you're at it, check out my other new podcast which is called Notes from Norwich I am joined by my friends Jan and Marguerite and we are reading through and talking about Julian of Norwich's Revelations of Divine Love so look for that, Notes from Norwich again thank you so much for listening, I appreciate it I hope you're well, I hope you're healthy my name is Chris Arnold and I'll talk to you next time on this calling. Alleluia. Christ is risen. Bye for now.